In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For another episode, we're going to be doing a movie review today, and I'm joined by Martin Grams, who helps run runs the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, is also an author of many different books. How you doing today, Martin? Oh, pleasure to be on the show, and uh, good. Thank you for asking. Oh, Martin's show, the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, that we'll take a minute to talk about, or at least a few minutes, is where I met met you. And um, the first show I went to, you had the um, Lee Majors, Lindsey Wagner, Richard Anderson. It was the $6 million man convention, and I went to that convention, and I've been to everyone since. One, it does help that you're only like 15 minutes from my house, so it's like you can't ask for a better spot for me. <laughs> oh, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> and two, when for people that have never been there, when you get to the show, it is a very family-friendly atmosphere. I mean, it's it's three days, and you get a chance to, a lot of time, talk to the celebrities that are coming for not just like a quick Minute, you can talk to them for several minutes, you know, depending on the size of the line. I mean, some celebrities' lines fluctuate. If you time it right, you can really get some great conversations going. I remember um, Bernie Copel from The Love Boat having a wonderful conversations. A few of us were just talking with him at his table, and it was just the stories that he was spinning um, from The Love Boat and Get Smart was, was wonderful. Oh, and you're correct about timing it right because it's amazing how on the first day, so many people were excited to meet the celebrities and probably, the, and to be fair, the primary reason they rushed to the show, that they end up in line and there's like a three, four hour line on the first day. And a lot of times people are there for the whole weekend and they always say, oh man, I'd love to stand in line, but I don't know if my legs could take it. And my answer is always, tell you what, tomorrow, Friday, come by around two, three in the afternoon. They look at me and I go, no, I'm serious. You can be in and out in 20 minutes and you can spend a few more time minutes asking questions. It was like this quieter later in the day routine. And, um, some of them, I think that most people are just too excited. They don't realize there's that advantage. Go later. And it does work except for Robert Fuller. That strategy never worked for Robert Fuller. Whatever it is he had, he had crowd all day, every day. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, and Robert Conrad also. That line was four hours long, and it just never ended. I think he was signing till eight or eight thirty in the evening. But to be fair, he rarely had ever done a convention, so it was kind of a big coup for that. Um, and, and I think this year, when we have Tony Dow and Jerry Mathers, that may be the same similar scenario. Um, but most of the other celebs, for example, Patrick Wayne and um, who's a couple of the others, uh, Louis Gossett Jr. They're probably going to be busy at first during the first half of the day, but the second half of the day, you could probably just walk up and have a conversation for five, 10 minutes and not have to worry about anybody in line. So just depends on the celebrity and the time of day. Now for listeners that are wondering, this convention's taking place this August 19th for the 21st, the Thursday, Friday, and a Saturday um, at Hunt Valley Delta Marriott in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Uh, for those that are in the area, obviously you're really close. 
uh, I think from what I saw on your website, the uh, tickets for advanced ticket sales are just about closed or closed. Cause you've had, you've had like a huge amount of ticket sales. Yeah. And it's interesting as a numbers guy, like sincerely ergonomics numbers guy, I was, it's puzzled me. And the only way we're going to find out is at the show. I do not know if ticket sales are, have broken a record because of the pandemic in two different aspects, or if it just happens to be the lineup. Um, it could be that people just want to get the heck out of the house. And every convention that I've been to practically in the last two months, now that the pandemic is pretty much over, people are pouring into the places like droves, like record-breaking attendance. I kept wondering if maybe months ago when we were still in the pandemic, people were buying tickets with the false impression that, hey, there's going to be a head regulation or restriction. And so therefore, if they don't buy the tickets, in theory, they won't be able to get in the door. But even after this, like the last month or so, where this is pretty much is all wound down, tickets were even selling more now than they were before. And I'm sitting back thinking to myself, either we're going to have record-breaking attendance or it's something with the pandemic that it's a scenario nobody would have predicted or I would have taken advantage even more. But on the plus side, we ran the same amount of tickets we did the year before and the year before that and so on for the convention. And we've never sold out where we physically don't have to mail them. So I think next year we're just going to have it where the computer will give you a printed one that by email that you can print out and bring with an individual barcode um, to save us having a stuffing envelopes. This takes time. And uh, it's, it really broke records this year, and I'm still puzzled. So we're going to find out what what it is. It may be that people just want to meet Jerry Mathers and Louis Gossett Jr. and some of the other actors that have rarely ever do shows. I mean, you have like Barbara Carrera, you know. So for those are James Bond, you always seem to have somebody from James Bond every year. It, it's actually part of the numbers. Um, there's about 200 to 300 guys to scheduling uh, permitting our Bond fans who will come to the show just because we have a Bond girl. We don't have to have two or three, but as long as we have one, they show up year after year. And the cost of airfare and hotel for a celebrity is expensive. So Bond girls, in a sense, because of the cost of admission, pay for themselves. So if I could have one every year, it's practically like we can't lose financially year after year. I remember being at a convention once, and the convention promoter was in the room, and I was in the room with the celebs. And I pulled him aside and I said, hey, got a quick second? He goes, yeah. And I said, small note you may not be aware of. See that guy over there who did such and such film? He goes, yeah. I said, that line has never stopped all day. Now behind me, see that actor, actress sitting there behind her table? He goes, yeah. I said, all weekend, and this is the morning of the third day, and I will tell you she's probably never signed more than 10 autographs all weekend. He goes, well, maybe she's not as popular. And I said, you know, for the cost of airfare and hotel, even if the people she signed autographs came just for her, you never made your money back. And he looked at me and he nodded and he understood what I said. So Bond girls, they pay for themselves. So we'll have one every year if I can. <laughs> oh, oh, trust me. I mean, you, you, you've had a wide variety in the Bonds. So it's, I'm, I'm like, I'm just, I'm just happy because I'm a James Bond fan as there are millions of people. <laughs> So it's nice to get a chance to meet them and, and, and talk to them. Yeah, the trick is that nowadays it's apparently become a lucrative off the side uh, way of making extra money. So any woman who was stand in number four in a Bond movie tries to claim themselves as Bond girls, and I turn a lot of them down. The trick really is to get one that was one of, to me, the, the formula was in most movies, 
you got a good Bond girl and a bad Bond girl. You know, there's always a good one and a bad one. And uh, the rule of thumb is to get one of them too, and preferably one who's done other films besides a Bond film. So if they did a ha- couple of Hammer horror movies, that would be perfect because now, like say Carolyn Monroe mm-hmm. all of a, or Martine Beswick, now all of a sudden you've got a nice crowd that wants to come not just for one demographic. Oh, it's, it's that's the one thing when you can get somebody that hits a lot of the little ticks a lot of little boxes, then you're able to really do well. Yeah, we had one year. It was the year we had uh, uh, um, Gary and Keir from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And it must have been the layout on the flyer because nobody made reference to the years before or the years after. But that year, I had half a dozen people at various instances pull me aside and say, man, you got a couple Western people here. You got a couple sci fi people here. You got a Bond girl. You got a Hollywood legend. You got a TV legend. And they, it was so evident and clear. And I thought, uh-oh, the recipe for the formula has been exposed. But the rule of thumb is that there should be something for everybody. And that's what I mean about a family atmosphere, because you got people from all different generations of actors. So uh, children who go there and have, fun, have things that they're going to enjoy, as well as the adults. You get to reminisce about some of those shows, but they also get to, uh, their kids get to experience it. And something I love about your show that helps the younger audiences connect with is the old-fashioned radio dramas, the reenactments that you guys do. Yeah, on stage with the sound effects and the scripts and so on. It's nice that we have two different ones. We have one that's the pro group that comes down from New York that does a good job. And then we have one where anybody who attends the convention has a shot at playing a role. And the director is looking for whoever can do the personas or the voices mannerism. And so if they've never done one before, he teaches them a few of the bullet points, like rule of thumb is not to make the sound of flipping the script over the microphone, because that's the sign of a, a radio actor. And they learn a couple things, and they pick up a couple things, which works. I remember uh, one year, and it's a hilarious story, we, there was a young lady who came in, she was wearing a red dress and blonde hair. And for some reason, there was something where all the guys were doing like a 70 cases of whiplash where their heads were turning and looking at her in the room. And we're like, she's out of place. This is not a, this is a nostalgia convention. And uh, she goes in and tries out for a role at one of the radio dramas. And they pass the scripts around. She gets up and they had one female role. So she reads her line. There's two other women in the room. And when the girl delivers the lines, everyone turned and looked at her. And all of a sudden, the other two women got up and said, we don't got a chance. And they walked right out of the room. <laughs> Later, we found out Later, we found out she was an actress herself and quite a very notable one. But the plain Jane face where nobody realized, oh, wait, that's who that is. She just came in, kept her mouth quiet and wandered. And she turns out she really was into old time radio, but she had never gotten to do a drama. But just the fact she recited a couple lines off the script, two women got up and said, nope, we're done. We don't got a chance and walked right out of the room. And, and you gotta love it because she didn't like she didn't drop her name. She went in, just did like everybody else, and her experience obviously was the big difference. But I mean, still, it's not like she said, "I'm so and so. Can I have a role in your thing?" You know. <laughs> yeah, we ended up uh, later on in the weekend after I saw the drama. I introduced myself later, and I said. I'm sorry, but you're coming off as a pro. What do you do for a living? And she goes, well, I've had a little acting off the side. And I says, what exactly do you do? So she gives me her website and I'm scrolling. She's the girl on the cover of a good housekeeping issue. She's Miss Scarlet on the cover of one of the Clue board games. 
she's a AccuView girl on the billboards you see when you're driving down the road. She's the dinner and a movie on TNT with the one guy where they talk about the movie between the commercial breaks. She's on Speed Channel hosting some car NASCAR thing. And I'm sitting going, oh, she's, once you know who she is, you see her everywhere now. But you never realize it's the same person because she's got that plain Jane face that never stands out. And I was like, okay. So she's like, oh, yeah, been on Law & Order, been on Sopranos. Remember this role? Yeah, that was me. And we're like, oh. <laughs> but that was, it was quite a moment you don't expect. And the thing is, 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 she's just like a fan like everybody else of old-time radio. And I think with podcasting, old-time radio – a lot, there's a lot of audio drama podcasts that are out there. It's making such a renaissance, and it's great to know that you're still keeping the old school shows out there and redoing the ones that are lost in, in recording them so people can actually be have these scripts still being read and, and, and enjoy it because it is such a great thing when you're driving in your car or, or if you're doing it, really, you want to do it right, get in your home, just put your headphones on, sit back in the chair and depending on which one you're doing, if it's a scary one, have the lights dimmed or off and you can really get transported back and just let your mind picture everything that's going on, which is the best special effects budget anybody could ever have because it's, it's unlimited. Oh yeah. We've done science fiction. We've done in the graveyards at 12 midnight when the clock, clock tower is striking. I mean, people are in dark alleyways and they're participating in the, one guy was got to be Popeye and one we did a recreation of Popeye and another one was Betty Boop. So you never know who you could play and it's always open to the public. Anybody can go check it out. So, and that's of course just a lot of the fun that goes on throughout the weekend. Oh, it is. And I mean, one of the things that's also nice is for those that want to get memorabilia, you have so many, a wide variety of dealers with, with um, the old time movies, the old time radios, CDs, uh, you got, uh, lunch boxes. You got figurines. I mean, you got a smorgasbord of stuff. You can get lost in the dealer room for hours and hours in the day. You know, just between different things and just just the the, the gaze all the different stuff. And they're all different. The price ranges vary from you know very expensive to very inexpensive, depending on what your interests are. Yeah, and it's it's uh, that uh, all shows the pricing and the items vary, but. Not because I put it on, but I will say, having attended 30-some conventions, most conventions, the vendors have a theme of particular. Like you go to a comic book show, and you're going to see primarily comic book, comic books. And then if it's not comic books, it's action figures or T-shirts. And for ours, I guess because it's so diverse, the selection of what is there is still mind-numbing. I have seen... $2,400 books being sold for 10 bucks because the sellers didn't realize what they had. And then one guy selling a trolley car sign for 2000 and before the end of the weekend, it's over. So it, it's just, you never know what you're going to find, but the variety is it's just impossible to walk away without going, going home empty handed. <laughs> and for listeners wondering the profits of this convention go to a very good charity. And what charity is that Martin? Oh, it's the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Um, the way the method works out is that the budget from this year pays for the expenses for next year. And then we have a certain dollar amount that we only need to keep it operating costs. Anything, so we have to be very cost conscious while we're making doing the event. And then anything above that at the end of the year always goes to the charity to help children with treatable cancer. 
we have a charity auction and all the money from that goes to the children on top of. Um, so even if it turns out we were to take a loss, which I think we've done twice in 16 years we've been doing the show, um, at least the charity auction still benefits the kids no matter what. Um, I, I will say the program guides just went up in price this year. We got we were able to negotiate to last year or the year before as price, but I, t- I know next year we're not going to be able to negotiate. And I thought, okay, now we got to do a little math and figure out, do we charge people $2 a program guide? Will they pay the $2? or where they decide not to go for the program guide. And we're kind of tossing around how to offset it because we have to take into account. Now, the budget with the crowd, if it grows more than it usually is, and I think it will, we could end up offsetting that so it won't be a problem next year. But somewhere along the line, we have to sit back and go, okay, costs went up. Do we scale back one celebrity less? Do we do, uh, you know, it's, it's all mathematics. So it's just trying to figure out. It's like juggling any business. It's the balance. And I will say for people that are going for the day or for the full, like I usually do all, all the days, um, the, the price of admission, whether you get your tickets in advance or at the door is, is inexpensive compared to some other conventions. Cause I've been to some conventions where it's, it, it is amazing how much they charge you just to get into the event. Yeah. And we've always said, because it's not a profit or we would have probably rose the price sincerely. Um, I always joke that the, a month later after our show, there's an event that's kind of similar, not so much. And they charge $30 per person for a day for admission and it's cash only. And your program guide is one piece of paper that's folded in half and handed to you. And that we give like a 56 page color magazine. It was full articles and full color glossy and all so I've always said that people are getting more bang for their buck at our show than they are at the other one. And how much is a, is a one day ticket? Um, in advance, it's fifteen on the website. So this year, now we're at this point, uh, we've sold out of all the tickets for us. Um, at the door, it's twenty per person. Kids are free, and we've had a couple people ask, "Well, what's the definition or borderline of kids?" And I always say. If they don't have a if they don't have their learner's permit or a driver's license, they're still a kid. If they can drive themselves, they're not a kid anymore. Yeah, so pretty much you're talking like 15, 16 age range um, or above, which which to me yeah, is, is a very fair range. Yeah, and we're not even picky too much. Get the young kids into the old stuff. A friend of mine once described our event as a comic con for older people. And so if the younger kids are coming in and they're being exposed to it, I'm just pleased to see them in there because, you know, they may know who the Lone Ranger is, but for all I know, their idea of the Lone Ranger is not Clayton Moore or Brace Beamer. It's uh, Johnny Depp and Arnie Hammer. And so this is kind of a way to get them into, they don't have to be into it like their entire life watching Buster Keaton movies on a Tuesday evenings in their house. But at the very least, they should know who Buster Keaton is. And so that's what the convention kind of helps uh, expose the old nostalgic pop culture to them. And for those wondering, not only do you get to meet the guests, the, the celebrities, get up to talk to them. Um, yes, if you want if you want to talk to them, it, it, your price of admission is all you need to do. If you want to get an autograph or a photo with them, it costs additional, um, depending on the celebrity. But even then, I know from other conventions, the prices that the celebrities charge here is very reasonable. It's a very fair price. Yeah, we actually have two clauses with them. Um, most conventions, people don't realize it, a lot of conventions actually try, want a piece of the action. Part of that is a negotiable strategy. It tells the vendor, the agents, hey, my show's so good, I want a piece of it. 
so that agents have a hard time saying no to bringing their celebrities to the convention. Um, but because there's a piece of the action, it causes the price to go up. So at our show, we never ask for a percentage. It's not our business. It's, we just keep it. We are separated from that. We just give them the platform and the, uh, the venue. The other is that we always contract that they cannot charge more than they charge at any other show, which maintains the price. In other words, if they charge $50 at an event because the event venue wanted 10 bucks for each autograph, at our show, they better at least be charging tw- that no more than $40. But in most cases, I think it's give or take, it's about $30, depending on the celebrities or the agents. Um, but they are charging less than they would elsewhere because they're not, we're not taking a piece of the action, which is why it's at least reasonable at our event. And our opinion always is, like you mentioned, your price of admission, you can ask questions, walk up to them, ask two or three questions, shake their hand, thank them for their time. You can sit in on a Q&A and listen to it, which is very popular during the weekend. So it's not like no one's twisting anyone's arm to get an autograph or pay to have their photo taken with them. Oh, exactly. And, and that's one of the nice things. You have a lot of Q&As. You have um, one big auditorium where people are doing the Q&As all the time. Um, some of them are with the celebrities. Some of them are with different people that will talk about different aspects of TV or of movies and, and they're experts in it. And I, and I know you've had Gregory Mank, a story and talk about different um, things. And uh, it's, 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 sometimes it's very educational. I remember one time you had a burlesque um, celebrity there and I, there's things I never knew about burlesque, but her Q and a was just fascinating to get that side of the story. Yeah, she was great. Um, I know there's a, a certain celebrities depending on what they did. We generally like to ask questions that we kind of prep it in advance. Um, generally, the, the the routine is that the uh, mod, uh, the moderator would ask them in advance at the show, introduce themselves, say, I'm going to be the one interviewing you this weekend. And they always say, is there any questions you want me to bring up and any questions you don't want me to bring up? And if it's one they want to because it's a story that they always like telling. And they always say, if there's a story you like to tell, I can ask about that adds to the enjoyment of that one good story they love that people would get. But sometimes there's a little obscurity that I think one year we had Margaret O'Brien and I remember Greg Mank interviewed and I said something along the lines of, Hey Greg, she did an episode of Playhouse 90 on live TV in 1958. I said, and the scene is that Tony Randall in a sexual rage runs out, goes over, grabs her shirt and rips it off. And she's topless on live TV. Her back is facing the camera and it had to be done just right. And I'm just curious what the heck that was all about. Like, how do they convince him to do it, and et cetera? And he asked her about it. Most people probably never even knew that Playhouse 9, she was on a Playhouse 90 or even knew about that broadcast. But it was a one of those main little minor aspects where we're like, hey, you got to ask about this because we're never going to, no one else is going to ever ask again. Plus, it might have a very cool story to it. Oh, I know. It, it, it's um, when I've done some interviews with people here, and and you'll hit a, you'll hit something, and it's great when you have that time to dwell delve into it. Like with Kirk Christian, when I interviewed him, and he told me how he did CPR, and uh, one of the movie sets, and saved one of the actors. You know, one of the Sinbad movies, and um, of course, I teach CPR, so it was kind of you know, and we ended up you know going off on his tangent. And he actually has done CPR a couple times and save and save people, and. Um, from choking. So he saved, it, it, it's amazing, you know, how, how, you know, you're just talking about one thing and he throws that line in. And the next thing you know, you're spending five, 10 minutes talking about something and how he saved these lives. And you get a cute, a cute and great story. Yeah. There's one actor I would love to have at the show. 
for a number of reasons, we kind of keep hesitating every year. And it's not the reasons you might actually think. Um, and that is uh, Robert Blake, because he was there way back in the golden age of Hollywood as a look among the little rascals to uh, doing so many other TV shows, movies. Um, what's that one where he's the cop? Um, something blue. Beretta? Um, he, not Beretta. There's a movie he did. It's oh. Something blue. And it's a fantastic movie, but you never expect to see how good it is until it's over. And you're like, oh, my goodness. That's a great movie. And he would have great stories, but we kind of sit back and go, ah, I would love to. But the stories he could tell is probably, he's probably on our top of our list of, we would love to have up on a stage and to give an hour. And as a, as a, uh, being who he is, he would love an hour on the stage with the mic to be able to talk about Hollywood. It's just, if you ask the one wrong question and it's not even the question you might think, and it could, that question changes by day because that's Robert Blake. And we might have a problem up on stage. So the real problem is, do we get him or not? But I would love to see an interview with him up on stage. He's probably our most wanted. I know. I know you've always been also trying to get what Marlo Tom Thomas to um, come because of St. Jude's. Yeah. Um, every year it's always something. This year is because of the pandemic. We thought, eh, we're not going to ask if she, and she's up in New York. So get her to come down where New York had a major outbreak. Uh, we kind of hesitated. It's kind of like one or two celebrities who, who would fly in from another country. But four, five months ago, it was iffy whether they'd even be allowed to fly into the country. And we were kind of like, you know what? It's just not this year. We're just going to get past this year. Next year we'll revisit it. So every year it's been a different reason. So I think next year we're just going to make the all out effort. And, hey, would you like to come to the show? Cause I know she was interested at one time. So she probably is still interested. And, and just to name a couple other people that are going to be at this year's show for anybody that was a fan of um, the Nancy drew, the, the Hardy boys, Nancy drew hour. You have Pamela Sue Martin and Parker Stevenson going to be there. I mean, you know, being at, at that age, growing up and reading the books and watching the TV show, it's just something I'm looking forward to. And anybody that's a Superman fan, you got Mariel Hemingway going to be there from Superman. So it's, or Superman yep. 4 to be exact. Yeah. And she's a nice woman. Very nice woman. Loves to sit there and talk about uh, the films that she had done and so on. And and it's very interesting because the, uh, the lineup, it changes. But I told the wife, in another four years, we hit our 20th year. Maybe not 20th convention because they missed one last year, but it's a 20th year. And I said, we're going to look back in 20 years and say, let's see, we had a James Bond, we had a Nancy Drew, we had a Hardy Boy. I mean, we can just go right down the long list of who we've had and go, wow, that was interesting. Heck, we even had Tinkerbell one year. I'm not joking, because there was a woman who modeled for Tinkerbell for Disney, and they've always used her likeness and image for Tinkerbell all these years. So I told the wife, I said, we practically had almost everybody from a little rascal to you name it. It's a nice variety. I mean, you also have Kathy Garber from the Ten Commandments, you know, um, the Cecil Bill, the Cecil B. DeMille one. And you have um, Marley Renfro, who was the body double in Psycho. I mean, so you, you, you're hitting a whole bunch of different hodgepodges <laughs> of different genres. Yeah. I always try to have one that's not one that I would see people deliberately contacting to have as a guest at their show. Marley Renfro was the one for this year. I, I looked at her and said, you know what? No one's going to invite her to the show. And she should, she has a story to tell. And to be honest, that's to me a novelty that I want to meet the very woman who was stabbed in the shower in Psycho. It wasn't Janet Lee. It was her. And I want to, I want to meet her. 
And I did double check to make sure it was indeed her, and it is. Um, but it's just one of those scenarios. There's always these celebrities out there that I can contact this uh, convention promoter and say, hey, so-and-so, would they'd be great for your show. And then they go, well, I don't know. And I'm thinking, you know, if you don't, I will because nobody else will. They, they got They People will want to meet them. So she's our, she's our uh, unusual one this year that's a little – you're never going to see it at other conventions. Oh, I know. And that, and that's the thing I look I like going to these shows. And the only thing I forgot to mention is you also have another room where you have movies playing, which um, feature different celebrities that are at the show in their different works, either TV or movies, but it, that's running constantly. Yeah, and uh, sometimes just obscure stuff for film buffs. Um, it changes over the years. We did learn hot rod films of the 50s and 60s and beach party movies of the 60s are dead. Nobody wants to see them. There is a market for it, but apparently not at film festivals. Um, we've learned that TV shows and movies with celebrities that are at the convention are the most attended. Um, we also found that TV shows, half hour or hour, seem to have be more well-received than movies. I guess people don't want to sit in the room for two hours watching a film where there's a lot of excitement in the hallways. So even this year, we kind of trimmed it down to TV shows versus movies for the most part. Um, so we, we keep tweaking the movie room a little bit, but I don't want them sitting in the movie room all weekend either. So we used to have a guy who was from the Library of Congress. He was among the film preservationists, and he used to give us the films every year to screen, and sadly he passed away. And uh, at this point, we don't know if there's a lot of diehard film buffs like him who were coming to see really rare, obscure things. So this year we kind of didn't play. We're not screening as many rare, obscure stuff for film buffs versus just more like TV shows of the 50s and 60s. And figure next year we'll play around with it again a little to see what people want to see. I like about it being like the TV show format is that if you want to take a break from walking around the dealer room and um, there's a Q&A, there's not a Q&A or a seminar going on to interest you, you can go there and take a nice half hour to an hour break um, and get to enjoy something you haven't, you may never have seen or hadn't seen in a long time. Um, with the TV show format, and it's just like, ah, this is perfect. You know, it's it's like a yeah. perfect little respite. <laughs> yeah, we've got a few. Of, we we usually do try to play obscurities. I know since Lewis Gossett Jr. is coming, we're playing the unaired TV pilot of um, uh, Blazing Saddles, which he had actually played the star in, and we thought people might get a kick out of that. We have the uh, pilot for Believe It to Beaver when it was called It's a Small World with only some of the cast. Um, doesn't have Hugh Beaumont. I don't think Tony Dow's in it. I think it's just Mathers and Billingsley. But it was like the, uh, it was the prototype for what they realized would become a, 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 a successful uh, situation comedy. I know because we have the uh, sons of Don DeFore and they're doing a presentation about their dad. We're screening an episode of Hazel, an episode of... Uh, um, Ozzy and Harriet, where he was the next door neighbor for a few years, and always a different time slot than, of course, the presentation. So there's a little bit of everything, but people get to see some stuff like, say, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon or Ozzy and Harriet that just doesn't air on TV anymore these days. I think the novelty, the big one we have this year, is we're playing a couple episodes of a show called um, uh, Code 3, which is a 50s detective series. And then a couple episodes of a show that's the equivalent, uh, it's called Dial 999, and it is the British equivalent of Dragnet. 
So we thought, well, we'll play, since it's filmed in Britain, we'll play the episode that features Barbara Steele's screen debut and another one that has Patrick Charlton and William Hartnell in the same episode before they were Doctor Who's. But people want to see what the British version of uh, Dragnet is. There's an opportunity. So I love to have those obscure oddities that just makes it worth watching. And if it turns out someone doesn't like it, eh, it was only 25 minutes. Exactly. And that's one of the things I love about the program is like you go through it when, when, when the program finally comes out, like, you know, like, like a couple like a week or two, whatever, before the show, when you got that finalized version and, and, and you're combing through and you're like, okay, now how do I plan my day? <laughs> I actually have people who will bring printed out lists and stuff or one guy, I think he wrote it on a piece of paper and he's got next to it, whether it's a movie or a seminar. So he knows which room to go to and he'll be like, yeah, then I got a four-hour lunch break between these two, so then I can go get lunch and then come back and go to the under the vendor area. And people map out what they want to do, and I find that's the the most amusing part of the convention because they have dedicated their time before the event, even planning what they're going to do and where they go. So when someone kind of practically almost cries two days before the show. I wanted to come, and I got I got to go to the hospital for some outpatient surgery or something. I actually, I believe they're sincere when they say they map stuff out and they were whole, so looking forward to this and that. It's almost their Disney. It's like they're mapping out their vacation. And some people are because they stay at the hotel or hotels in the area because obviously the, your hotel books out very fast. And um, I don't know, are there still tickets left? Usually at the end, you have a banquet. Are there still tickets left for the banquet or did it sell out like usual? They sold out like usual, but... Being in a post-pandemic world, most of the dinner tickets were spot last year, and nobody wanted to surrender them <laughs> like to get a refund. So they were, oh, no, we'll use them for next year. And I'm thinking, well, dinner tickets next year is going to be tough. And I think we had maybe seven or eight that came back total, and we ended up, there was a waiting list. So we even have a waiting list now. It's, it's one of those scenarios like the guy who wanted to get a dinner ticket. He called up and says, what do you mean you're sold out? This is November. And I was like, Dude, they sold a year ago because of the convention there. Nobody wants to relinquish. And he's like, oh. <laughs> or the vendor who called up and wanted a vendor table. And I said, we've been sold out for months. And he goes off and, now, how the heck does a show sell out that many months in advance? And I go, uh, pandemic, everybody just carried it over to next year. And there was like a pause on the phone. He realized I wasn't joking. That, that's a realistic scenario. Nobody predicted. So. <laughs> It, it is nice to know that uh, this will probably be the largest crowd based on ticket sales, but we'll find out. And that's one of the things I want to thank you is from last, because I had tickets last year, and I know, and, and your policy has been you you, um, you honored a ticket from last year, so people couldn't make it for whatever reason. It's like you paid for it last year, we'll, we'll honor it this year, you know, which is always we've, nice. Yeah, we've always honored any past tickets. We always take them. I remember, I think we've only had one time where somebody wanted to keep it as a souvenir and we're like, no, you don't understand they're as good as cash. You know, you can come in next year and use it and we can't punch a hole in it and assume that people running the front desk next year will be aware of that. We're like, we take and confiscate the tickets. So if it's from 2017, we would take it. It's, uh, but for 2020, we never had 2021 tickets printed this year. Um, we've had a couple people confused. They'd call up and go, I think you sent me the wrong ones. And then a couple others would call and say, I'm assuming what you did is you just never got 2021 printed because you're using 2020. I said, yep. They go, okay, see you in August. <laughs> so it was just a scenario. Why go to the expense? 
I mean, you got them sitting there. What What is the point? And especially if you're going to honor them anyway, I mean, it, it makes no sense. I mean, the only thing, if, if the tickets had dates on them, you know, then people could be a little confused because there was a different time frame then. Yeah, and that, that's that's what happened this year where they were a bit confused. So I figured starting next year, um, we will probably just do them where they're just emailed to them with a barcode. And it'll be an individual barcode for each person. The computer generates it. So it can never be redeemed twice. Like they can't print out three copies and give it to their buddies. Um, it'll say it was used at least once. And um, that way we don't have to print them. But I already decided instead of putting dates on them, we're just going to have one day, two day weekend. And that way moving forward, they can always use them whenever. Uh, my fear is that they'll forget to bring them and then we have, a, we have to look it up. In some cases, we may not be able to. So we're still on the fence. But I know we're not going to have dates moving forward just to avoid the confusion. And that way, they're as good as any future years. If somebody cancels and that was the one reason they came, we would tell them, you know, hold on to them, use them for next year. I think we we did have Haley Mills originally signed for this year, but then it was a matter of whether she can get out of England and fly into the U.S. this year. And we were like, you know what, let's just shoot it for next year. And she also had her autobiography coming out in September, and there's a schedule that she has to adhere to. And someone had called and said, well, I don't, I got these tickets. And I said, I'll tell you what, we can give you a refund, but we, she'll probably be at the show next year. So here's the rule. Why don't you just hold on to them? If she's not confirmed for next year and can't, we'll still refund you. I said, but this way we don't have to go back and forth with tickets or twice. And the woman goes, okay, that works. And I said, yep, call me in a few months. I'll tell you if she's coming or not. So it, we're easy to work with. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I'm saying about it. It's the atmosphere is so laid back and nice and, you know, for those that haven't gone before, I highly recommend you go to this show. You'll enjoy it. You'll have fun. What do you go for one day, more than one day? You'll you'll find that if you go for one, if you only go one day, you're gonna probably wish you went for two days. But you know, it, it depends on who who you're there for. If you're only there to really see one celebrity, and that's your goal, like to see Lewis Gottson Jr. or Patrick Wayne or you know the guys from Leave at the Beaver. I mean, if that's what you would just want to see, those two or or or, or, or three people. Um, then one day's fine, but if you're like me, where you're just such a big buff of different movies and TV, it's it's pretty much you want to get to see all the Q and A's and get to meet everybody and and do that stuff. Because the one good thing about the Q and A's, I know a lot of people are shy talking to celebrities, and they, and they get up there and they then they freeze up. Well, the the, the Q and A, you go there, it's an hour long, and somebody's bound to ask your question if you don't feel you know comfortable asking the question yourself, and you get to still get that sense of stories from the past. Yes. Oh, yes. And and I'll tell you, the, the the best, the biggest compliment we've ever gotten, and we get it a lot of times, is, hey, I came to your show for the first time last year for a day. My friend came with me. Next weekend, next year, we're going to do the whole weekend. And to me, that says we aren't like the most conventions where if it's just vendors and celebs, you're in and out in a day. There's no reason to be there more than a day. So that, to me, has always been the biggest compliment. And I always love hearing that at other conventions when I bump into people who are at our event. Exactly. Um, now, we talked about the movie room earlier. You're also here to talk, talk about a movie. And prior to this, I rolled the die, the dice with you, and you ended up getting foreign movie as the movie to pick. You had to pick something that was in the outside the country. And what did you pick? Uh, it was The White Reindeer from, I believe, 1952 or 53. And technically, it was re released in the United States around 56 or 55. So, uh, yeah, early 50s and great film. 
Oh, it, it, it definitely. I, I, I saw it. You sent me a copy, and um, that which thank you very much. It, and, and I'd never heard. I mean, I, I, I've heard the name The Right Reindeer, but I never. It's a very hard movie to find. Yeah, they put it out on Blu-ray and DVD recently, commercially, but I think it was like limited edition, so it probably will end up selling out and eventually being one of those two hundred dollar Blu-rays that'll go out of print eventually. Um, I know we screened it at our event since we were just talking about the event probably about six, five, six, seven years ago. And it was the winter of the weekend. And I wouldn't have known at the time we did it like, you know, nine o'clock at night, figuring out if we always put in our program guides, except this year, I seem to forget. Um, we always put, if you're going to watch one film all weekend, this is the one film. And so I guess it attracted a lot of people's curiosity and they went to see it or they had nothing to do that evening. And all day, the next day, every 20, 30 minutes, someone came over and goes, hey, that movie last night, that was great. And I was like, wow, that that was a winner because nobody expected what they were going to see. So when you get a room full of people and that's even the next day, they're commenting and praising the film. That tells you how good it is. Oh, it, it definitely was. I mean, it, it, I think it's the first movie I've seen that was um, the language was all in Finnish. Um you know, the, the, the country of origin, it says, was Finland, but I think you said it was Finland and possibly um, Sweden? Yeah, I think there's there's some sort of connection. It was definitely Finland, but I think there's part of it from Swedish. Um, and it's a very unique film. It's technically, by genre, it's a cross between the vampire and werewolf legend, and it's more folklore. And it technically is a horror film, even though it's more of a fantasy where the film isn't meant to scare or frighten you but it definitely qualifies as a horror movie. And, but it's interesting because it's like the, the least scary, but the most beautifully shot horror movie anyone would ever see. And what I, if for, for those wondering, it, I don't even, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the actor's names. I mean, you can go for it if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I wouldn't give it a try. I'm going to mispronounce them anyway. But, it, but I think we're safe with going with the director, Eric Bloomberg um, or Blumberg. Did, um, did the directing and um, it, it was wonderfully directed. I mean, it's, it's amazing because for those that didn't know about life in Finland back in the day, you're getting a snapshot of a lot of different cultural aspects that you would just, that, that are totally foreign to us, you know, totally different how people would um, celebrate different things and do different things. Like I never knew reindeer were used to um, pull sleds until, you know, besides Santa, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a, it, it was a, it's one of those, you see how they use hunting and how they live up there in a snow-capped landscape, um, beautifully shot as they use the right visuals from grayscale, not just black and white, um, moody atmosphere shots where the camera is practically down on the snow and you can see little crystals shining on the bottom of the screen when the sun hits it but way in the distance while that's a distraction that's to remind you of the the temperature and the the, the scenario they're all in way in the distance is where the characters are emphasizing which one's more important because it's more up frontal in the picture um i wouldn't even pronounce his uh the actress's name but the, the lead cast but i believe that was his wife too Yes. So, so it's one of those films. I think she did, if I'm not mistaken, she had done a few films, a number of films before, and then married him and went to another country. She might be Swedish. And uh, it's one of those things where she, I guess, it was just like kind of like a revived, hey, let's do it. I don't care. I mean, you know, what have I got to lose? My career is pretty much done filming. 
and yet the film was Cannes Film Festival, it won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign, Best Foreign Film. Um, it's, I think, Cannes Film Festival for Best Folklore Fairy Tale Film, of all things. They had a category for that. So it's, But it's so visually, beautifully shot. Um, I can only equate it to if anyone has ever seen an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, the French film that they used on a Twilight Zone episode back in 64 or 65, that's the equivalent of it's just beautifully shot. Oh, it, it, it definitely was beautifully shot. I mean, it's the, the scenes because before it takes its fairy tale twist or um, the horrific, the horror twist, whatever you want to look at it, it, it it's pretty much just a tale of two people falling in love during reindeer games, <laughs> so to speak, you know, with, with the sleds and everything. And, um, and, 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 their, and their relationship. And of course he is a reindeer hunter. So he goes away for a long time, long periods of time with the hunting parties and she gets lonely and goes to a person to like a shaman or a witch doctor, whatever you want to say, um, to have something to give her the power to have to draw, to draw men to her. Cause she wants to, she wants him to stay. So she wants to be like more, more, um, attractive or more, you know, desirable. Um, and, and which of course it goes astray. Correct. Yeah. And then she's not the one drawing the toboggans. <laughs> she's the one that they're hunting and she's hunting them. It's, it's almost like the old story of the, the princess who goes to the witch and strikes the deal. Story. It's like a fairy tale folklore, but just done with a different style. And I guess if I was a movie producer in Hollywood and the director came to me and came up with this idea and said, hey, this is going to be great. It's a vampire werewolf type story where the wife turns into a vampire reindeer and goes hunting down the people. And I would say, what else is there to it? I'd get dead silence and I'd be like, I'm not going to fund that. But somehow overseas, they funded it and they just one of those films it's stark it's moody not very scary like i said but it's just it's really good and i think part of the reason it got funded over there is because it is based on pre-christian finnish mythology Correct. And, and so so it has so in their culture this is like i don't i don't know how popular it was in the 50s but i'm, I'm assuming it was still a popular myth, um, story that they were using so it was able to get the funding where you're right here in the united states people be like what <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, she's a bloodthirsty shapeshifter, and it kind of centers along that old mythology of offering a white reindeer to a stone god and having a witch get involved. Um, it's it's one of those obscure oddities that we could talk for hours about, and people would go, "What are they talking about? A white reindeer?" And yet, if they make the effort, and I do recommend they go to Amazon and buy the Blu-ray or DVD, they can thank us later because it's really a remarkable film. Yeah, and it's not a long film. I mean, depending on what version they're looking at, there's a there's a seventy four minute version, and then there's a sixty eight minute restored version. So you're talking like an hour and fifteen minutes. Yes, it is subtitled, but I mean, there's it, it's it's not dialogue heavy because there's a lot of scenes where, like I said, they're racing or they're, or they're showing the reindeer herding. They're they're showing these different aspects of their lifestyle. Yeah, and 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 it's one of those interesting films. The one thing I remember when I watched it probably years ago, and then somewhat I think a year or so ago, not probably a few months ago, I remember that as I was watching it, I go, you know, there's actually cheery music in the first part of the film, like it's a Christmas movie. But once the transformation comes into play, 
you don't have the cheery music. It's not hard nah, 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 music, but menacing music, but the music is not cheery. And it's like they didn't want to make it a horror movie by moody atmosphere, but there's enough there of change to indicate that the film is going a different direction. And it's like you don't expect it if you go in there and not realize you're going to be watching this horror movie that isn't really a horror film. Right. And I just find it interesting because there are so many scenes where she's luring men to their doom um, because of the, the curse or the magic that's done to her. Whatever you want, whatever way you want to word it, you know, it's kind of, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to put in the words. I don't, we don't, we don't want to spoil the ending of the film because we know a lot of you listeners have not seen this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, well, if you've seen enough films, you can easily predict where it's going to eventually, how it's going to eventually. And, um, I remember that it did get a 4k restoration and it came out on Blu-ray. So even whatever national foundation over in Finland, is doing restoration of movies felt that, that it was essential that this film be restored. And you think about the that tens of thousands of movies in the United States have been restored. And some of them, we actually ask why you have to admit that this would had to be up on the top of their list for them to actually do this film and clean it up and make it, but visually it has to, it's the imagery is just magnificent. And like you mentioned earlier, it was released in the United States later. It was in 1956 or maybe 55 but it won the 1956 Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Film. It was one of five yeah. films to win it. And so it, so this we're not just talking about how we enjoy it. It was at the time it came out, um, a critically liked movie. I don't know how well it did in the box office because it doesn't talk about any of that and any of the stuff I can find, whether how, how well it did in Finland or in the United States. I mean, being a foreign film, it's usually in the 50s. It, you know, it, it, it's very hard to tell. And those kind of films, they're what they call perpetual sellers. And in the, in the business terms, it means it doesn't have to be the best seller when it first premieres. But as long as, you know, decades later, it's still cranking in money. In this case, it's being restored and then commercially released and still being screened. The director gets a bigger compliment than a film that I'm sure there was dozens of movies made in Finland that same calendar year that no one has ever heard of and has never gone anywhere. So it's kind of credit. It's what they call a perpetual seller. And for listeners wondering, we're talking about the, again, the 1952 movie. There was a, I think a redo for it in what in 2013 or something I saw, but I've not seen that one. So I have no idea how good that is. Yeah. The commercial release is the restored version. I think that's the one I have that you probably watched too. Um, if there was anything that I was never certain of, and they really don't go into detail because I don't live, we don't live in Finland, so we don't know they're based on looking at anything. They don't tell you the time period, whether it's taking place in modern day or a hundred years ago when the story takes place. I mean, there's no vehicles, toboggans, but still it's like nothing to indicate whether or not this was a modern day fairy tale or a fairy tale from like, you know, a hundred years ago that it, that's when the story takes place. They never give you any indication of that. And I like that because I think fairy tales that are done well should have that timeless element to it, to where you you don't know it, is it is it, you know was it 1950 was it 1850 was it 1750 I don't know but it has it has that timeless work to it. Yes, um, it's it's some people I think they could say it's a remake of the Wolfman for Scandinavians, but it's you know the torture and the, and the torment, but. 
there's still a love story involved. And that's, of course, what every movie should have if you don't have anybody pulling through. Even in good, even in decent horror films where there's no love story, there's still somebody who's supporting somebody, even if one of them gets killed at the very end, because they're kind of tag teaming in a sense. They're partnering up. So in this case, it's definitely a romance involved, and it's really good. And and I think one of the main reasons this movie is so successful is the star. Um, Again, we can't pronounce her name, but I think her character's name, if I remember right, was Parita, Parata, and... She is just marvelous all through the movie. When she smiles early on in that movie, when they're doing the reindeer sledding and stuff like that, it just it brightens you up. I mean, she has that 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 personality, that charisma. That when 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 she was smiling, she was happy, and and she was such a strikingly good looking actor. You know, when you see her do those things, you're just like, wow, she's just amazing. Yeah, she did a bunch of films before. And I don't think she was like a big name, kind of like, I guess, in, in, to equate her to a, an American actress, she might be, um, I'm trying to think of a, an actress like in the 50s who might have done like a dozen movies and was seventh billed and maybe third billed or fourth billed, but never was carrying the top and the studios never gave a chance. And then she married the director and they, she had just done one movie before and was going to supposedly retire. And the story is that he had this great idea and she said, well, why don't we change it to this? And it was most, he came up with the idea of hunting a reindeer story. She came up with a fantasy horror element. So a lot of it goes credit to her because I guess that's why the performance is so good because she wanted to do this type of role. And the movie did so good that she did like another half dozen films in Finland after that. And I guess nothing really hit the mark for the white reindeer and so she just kind of said, okay, I'm done. I'm retiring. And that was it. She, she, I mean, she didn't like pass away and say, I'm not doing any more. And she couldn't do any more movies. She just retired and said, I'm done. And she she did, wasn't. She did 24 movies um, up to 1950s, so from 1937 to 1956. And then she passed away, um, sadly, at a young age of 48 in 1963 from a brain hemorrhage. Uh-uh. Aww. Yes, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting um, life or career. Or I guess sometimes the actors and actresses, and she would be among them, gets famous and known for one particular movie, and it might have not have been the movie she never expected when she was trying all the years before to become a big name actress for whatever movie she was doing for whatever studio. Um, usually, that kind of happens. They go off and do a cult film that's lower budget. And next thing you know, surprise, you're a big hit now. I think. Uh, the yeah, origin would be kind of similar to a Gloria Swanson, who she did some films in the 40s, but she was a silent screen actress and never got top billing once sound came in real quickly. And then she does Sunset Boulevard. Next thing you know, the offers have been poured in again. But she didn't do anything after that. So now today, she's not remembered more. She, Even though a lot of us know her as a silent screen actress, she's known more for uh, uh, Sunset Boulevard than anything else. So I would say that's probably an equivalent to what this actress in uh, Finland did is she just got and do the wrong one right movie and boom, now she's immortal. Oh yeah. And, and, and the thing is, it's just, like I said, such a natural beauty and charisma and her acting. I, I wish, I wish I could understand finish because I, I, I'm sure what she's saying and, you know, emoting across would just be so wonderful. And it's, that's the hardest part when you're watching something in a different language, even you can get the, the vocal intent 
from it, but without understanding the words per se, it, it does lose a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, she, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, I like foreign films when they have the subtitles. My wife likes them when they're dubbed. Um, I like the subtitles cause I think translation comes through a little bit better, but it's like watching uh, horror sci-fi films on Netflix. You could tell that movie after movie, TV show after TV show, it's the same actors doing a different, same voices for different characters in different films. And it kind of loses that punch because now you don't have that distinct voice for this one character. It's like listening to William Conrad doing five different characters in one movie. It's kind of, for dubbing, it doesn't work, as, unlike him being in the role. By the way, I remember, um, and I'm just remembering it now, the actress, she not only came up with the main prospect, she, if I remember correctly, if you watch the credits, she also was responsible for makeup and the costumes. Oh, yeah, they definitely, they remind me of some of these independent filmmakers that I've interviewed where you get you got the 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 the, the spousal team um, working on these movies together, and and how they all they take these different hats and they and they help out, you know, because like she did she they both did the writing together, she did the costuming, she did the makeup, he did the um, Eric Bloomberg did the um, cinematography, the editing, you know, so it's in the, in the directing. So they, they both are wearing multiple hats to get this production done. And I'm not sure if that was normal in Finland because we always know the Hollywood system, but I mean, in other countries, everything's a little different. And what, and whether this was a low budget film over there or like an independent or whether this was a major studio project in for Finland, I don't know. Do you? No, I don't either. Um, for all I know, it's actually, that's kind of standard what they did where everybody wore multiple hats and maybe it's not. I will say for the lighting and the cinematography, not only did the director know what he was doing, um, they had to have done only limited amount of hours that they could have filmed during the daytime to get the right shadows. Um, because in many movies, there are three things I've noticed that they can never, ever, and this is all American films, you can you can always tell that they're going to goof. One is the length of a cigarette. From cut to cut, it always changes. Um, reflections and windows, not mirrors. They're always good about keeping track of mirrors. They forget about windows. And then usually the, the height of um, uh, the shadows when they're filming during daytime, nighttime. And I will say, TV production now in the last year for shows like on Netflix and Amazon, boy, the shadows. You can tell when they shot at daytime, nighttime, or like a two-hour difference because all of a sudden he's got sunlight hitting his face. The next cut, there's no sunlight. And the next cut, there's sunlight again. Um, for them, there's consistency. And I not that I look for it, but in this here, the, the length of the shadows when the sun is hitting her and it's going along the snow, it's the same shot after shot. And I realized they either did it one shot and said good enough or they, they really perfected it. But there's the cinematography is as good as it gets. And it's far more intricate in detail than they do here in the United States, even today. Oh yeah. He definitely had a, an extremely good eye of setting everything up because not, not even just the outside shots, but the interior shots um, were, were done very well. I mean, it's just for those that like movies for their cinema, photography this is a very good movie to see if you if you like seeing movies where you're learning something about other countries culture very good movie to see if you like to see an actress just own the movie it's a it's a great movie to see (laughs) 
Yeah, I remember there was a shot in one of them where she's in a building, a room full, a bunch of people, and the camera's straight on her, and she's looking at the camera. And she's got a white, I guess they used a wolf skin or a elk skin or something, or reindeer skin maybe, going over both sides of her head like it's a droopy uh, hat to keep her warm. And it's very white and bright. And yet everybody surrounding her, they didn't put a spotlight on her. Everyone around her has grayscale or bluish tint. It's not white. So in other words, they made sure she wore the white hat and nobody else did. So she stands out even though she's in dead center. So there's some imagery that they kind of put in there from the very beginning that throughout the movie matches. And I always thought that you almost get the impression they took a page from Orson Welles, who said use the camera to tell the story and to emphasize the scene. Like in Citizen Kane, when Leland's getting browbeated by Kane, uh, the camera goes up to Kane, and the camera's always facing down to Leland because Kane's yelling at Leland. And I always thought that was a great way of telling, emphasizing the scene. And in here, they kind of do the same exact thing. It's not so much... I'm sure in the snow they couldn't really do a lot of pan and scans, but you get the idea. It's just they used the camera and the instead of so much lighting, they just made sure everybody wore the right costume so that certain things stand out. So you're you don't have to have the movement to catch your eye. It's just what they're wearing is enough to get your eye, and you're looking at the right person that you need to at the right time. Oh, correct. And one of the things I'm trying to I'm trying to tack on with your thing. And it's leaving me. But one of the things I really loved about this movie was its attention to detail, was its utilization of interior, exterior shots. It's just, it's hard to say. The sound, the music going with it, everything was just done so well. And it, I'm really kind of, I'm kind of lost of words. What else to say? Because I, mean, I don't want to spoil anything for people that we know haven't seen it. But I definitely am glad you picked this movie out you know, uh, from the, for the farm, for the dice roll, because I, I never would have probably watched it without you picking it out. And um, I did a quick search while we were talking and just put the white reindeer in and just hit shopping. And it's available like on um, eBay and some other places for $21. Yeah. That's about what I remember the DVD or Blu-ray when it came out commercially was 25. It might've been from overseas. I remember I had to get mine from overseas. Um, I think it's available now in the United States, but at the time I had to get it from overseas. And I can't remember what brought it to my attention other than somebody probably just asked me to find it or get it for them. Um, and it was like, yeah, I'll get it for them because I wouldn't have thought myself just to get that just for something that obscure. Oh, and, and that's that one thing when people like ourselves get together and we talk about movies or TV shows or books or whatever, you're able to get talk to people and say, Oh, did you ever read this one or see this one? And then you're like, Oh, I never saw that. Oh, I recommend you. And you could talk a little bit about it to play it up. Like we're doing now to other people without spoiling it. And then people will be like, Oh, if they see it, then it's in your mind. And like, it could be a year or two later. And, you, and there you are at a convention and you're walking by a dealer table. that has a bunch of movies that, you know, you, you don't always get to see available. And then, yeah. you, and then you see that title and then you look at the price and sometimes, you know, you're like, Hey, let's go for it. Yeah, I remember uh, right before we were doing the recording here, we uh, I was mentioning about a movie that a friend of mine had recommended, and I was on the fence, but only because of his recommendation. Like, yeah, we're going to go to the movies. <laughs> we'll go see it. It's, and to be honest, this is one of those films, The Right Reindeer. You, you can only see it at home when you get the home DVD or Blu-ray, but 
this is the kind of film I wish I owned my own movie theater where we can once or twice a month flip up a movie once in a while and say, okay, absolutely obscure, must see. If you like any movies, come see this. Because um, this is not going to be one that you're ever going to see in a movie theater, sadly. Oh, and I'm glad you said it. I never remembered. This is one of the reasons I own a multi-regional Blu-ray player is because when you when you go to other countries to try to get certain things, I don't have to worry about the region. I can just purchase and get it, and I can play it. Yes. Uh, I've always told people, uh, don't just buy any DVD or Blu-ray player. Make sure it's multi-region, all region, because then you'll never have a problem no matter where you get it. And so much like this, well, at least this was years ago, it's only available overseas. And if you can get it, you don't want to be restricted not being able to get a film. Um, I remember a, a friend of mine the other week was asking me about a movie. He said it's called Bad Sister. And it's 1931. And he goes, and it's Betty Davis's first film. And I said, every Betty Davis movie came out. Warner's, uh, that's a huge cash commodity for them. And the guy goes, it's the only film she didn't do for Warner's. She did it for Universal and then went to Warner's. And I took a look, and he was right. It's only available in, overseas in England. So I bought it and, and to watch it. But if I didn't have an all-region player, I wouldn't have been able to watch it. It was one of the best purchases I did a few years ago on, for being able to watch things. It was one of the worst purchases I ever did a few years ago for my wallet. <laughs> 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 because it opens up a lot of other areas. You know, it's like, oh, I can get this now and this now. And it's like, oh, you know, so it, so I'm just warning people. It's a great thing to get so you can get other films. The bad, the negative is, is then you're also getting other films. So it's take that into account. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and but, you know, it's, this is the kind of world where no hobby is free. And uh, to enjoyment, we always have to put a price on it. So personally, I, I'm okay with getting something like this. You know, they always they always joke everyone has a pill. And to be honest, if it's not drugs, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, so movies, yeah, it's fine. Obviously, I think it's safe to say you and I both recommend this movie to other people. So, you know, we, I don't think we have to... <laughs> Now and the recommended. This is one of those films that probably be the one film of the calendar year. And I watch old movies and new movies. And I will say, back then they had just as many good films as they did bad films back then as they have today. Um, but I generally, when someone asks me what's the three best films you've seen this year, and has to, I see so many that I rarely walk out of a theater and say one of the best films of the year. So if it if I say that once or twice a year, that is definitely one of them. And I would say there's always one or two out of the three every year that's older films than newer films, just because it's that good. So this would be the best film that anybody listening to this would see this calendar year if they get it and watch it. New or old, this would be like the one film they're going to rave about, probably recommend to their friends, be loaning it to them. Then you got to see this. And I get friends who loan me stuff when I watch it. But this, is, this would be one of the best films they'll see this year. Oh, definitely. I'm not going to argue. It, it, it's one of the better ones I saw this year. And, I, and of course, this last year and a half, a lot of people have been seeing films at home, you know, through streaming and other things. Um, but I, I personally always like to get the physical media because whatever happens, you still own the movie. Yeah, that's, I always say DVDs and Blu-rays is the true on-demand. What's available today to see on Amazon or Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming source they are available now. That does not mean they're going to be available to be seen next month. And I've seen a lot of stuff that they'll announce the following online. They'll say the following are going to be discontinued starting end, end of this month. And they'll add other films in its place. So once you own it, you own it. Now, 
um, just before we end, Martin, um, I talked about reading stuff. You are a prolific writer of different things. Any any couple of books you want to you think that people might be interested in that you've written to know about? Um, yeah, I've I've written a few. Um, I'd like to. What I like to do as a sideline, as a hobby, is do research. And when I use that word, I mean legwork. We'll track track down family relatives, go to archives, scan materials, and then write books documenting, publishing my findings on subjects. A lot of it's sci-fi horror, and some of it's the old kitty fair that from the 30s, 40s. Um, but I like to document and correct all the oversights, debunk myths. Um, one of the biggest ones, and the one that won a lot of awards, was a book I wrote on the Twilight Zone called The Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic and it apparently won a ton of best book of the year awards even the people some people who had written books on twilight zone before said oh my goodness this just took my book and made it obsolete and which was a nice compliment from them so i've done that i've done a book on the great history of the green hornet uh the shadow uh, just finished one on the lone ranger just finishing the index now um it just i like to do books on that they can find a whole list very comprehensive on my website at martingrams.biz that's b-i-z short for business and then since we mentioned the convention earlier it's called the mid-atlantic nostalgia convention and they can check the website out named after the event midatlantic nostalgiaconvention.com and by the way we since we have a full color uh, program guide I mentioned, as you're aware of, it's like a full color magazine with articles. Even if they're not attending the convention, if they want a copy of the PDF of that issue, we are always more than glad to give it to people for free. And usually about a week or two before the convention, we post that as a link up on the website so people can download it in advance and read it for those who are coming or people who cannot make it, they can at least read it and enjoy it. So it's like a free digital magazine and doesn't cost them anything. And, and haven't, haven't read those before. There are some nice articles in there and I'm one of those guys also when it comes available, I like to look at it just to get an idea of, okay, what celebrities are doing, what Q and A's and what stuff. And part of what I do is I try to figure out my time that I want to, to get, to, to go get the autographs and the photographs that I like, you know, with different celebrities. So that way I know, okay, if I go, I got, these couple hours I'm going to dedicate to that for that day and then, you know, go to, and that way I can work it out a little bit. So I know, and also plan to eat. You got to eat people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we have, a, we have a few rules and we always tell people the joke is everyone knows, nobody knows how to behave in public. All we do is ask them to act like adults and put on their big boy pants. So one of the rules we always have is that you are more than welcome to eat and drink in the seminar room, event room, movie room. We have no restrictions. We just ask people to clean up after themselves. Do not leave your sticky candy bar wrappers on the seats, please. Um, and so far, we haven't had any problem. But I know some people, their schedules, they want to see so much and do so much that they literally – get an extra thing at lunch because they know for their dinner that they're going to be sitting in watching a Q&A panel that they want to see because they don't want to also lose the spot for the next panel that follows after that and they don't want to leave the room so they'll bring their dinner with them <laughs> which is okay that just means they're having a lot of fun oh exactly and and that's why I recommend go for buddy because one of you can hold the seat while the other one has to use the um, um th th those things that everybody has to do during a convention during the day <laughs> 
Yeah. We had a, I think about three years, two or three years ago, we started having a problem we never had before. People would leave their items on the chairs in the front row and then come back four hours, five hours later. They were reserving their seats for the Q&As that would happen hours later. And we're seeing that going, no, there's other stuff before then. People, if they want the seats, they can have it. So I go in there and someone tells me, hey, they left that stuff there two hours ago. We've been sitting here watching the presentations, but they did that to bookmark their seats. And I said, no, I get it. And they go, yeah, but that's not fair to anyone else. And I looked at my shirt and it said security because I wear a security shirt. And I said, hmm, somebody left their stuff here. It's been how long? They go, two hours. And I go, oh, lost and found. And I picked it up and they were giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> so we had to put a sign up to please don't bookmark seats. You know, it, you can't do it. So, but yeah, I, got, I like the buddy system better. Yeah, because one, it, everything's always more enjoyable. If you're in a line talking to a friend or whatever, a lot of times my son will go with me, one of my uh, my older son, Ben, and um, you know, then you can explain these different things. And there's things that he wants to do. And, it, you know, that way you can bounce things back and forward. But it, it makes it nice when that way um, when you're at waiting for a Q&A, you're at one Q&A and you're waiting for the next Q&A to start. If one of you has to go use the bathroom, well, you know, the other guy's there. <laughs> Yeah, we had we had an agent for two Bond girls one year, and we had a presentation. It was the history of Bill Finger from the man who actually found out Bill Finger co-created Batman, not Bob Kane, and changed the way Warner Brothers and other studios had to credit the authorship and creatorship of Batman. And he was the guy, and he came into a presentation. And I remember the agent calling me up two days before the show and said, dummy me, I only now I just checked the schedule of events can someone fill in for me for an hour? Because I actually want to go up and see that. And I'm thinking, yeah, you are a fanboy. (laughs) I was like, I'll go sit with Maude Adams and Brett Ackland. I'll be fine for an hour. And he goes, I'm sure you will. (laughs) I'm sure that was really killing you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the beauty of being the convention promoter also is when you're with the actors and actresses, if they know it's professional and you're not some self-obsessed fanboy, um, they're much more open to giving you candid things that doesn't generally go public. And I remember sitting with Maude Adams, some guy comes over. I guess he didn't realize what he was saying. And he goes, well, you're not my favorite Bond girl, but I guess sometime this weekend I'm going to come back and get an autograph. And I'm thinking, bang to table with my head into table with, but he did not just say that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess some people are just a little starstruck and they don't realize what they're saying, but like you don't tell them you're not my favorite. Yeah, that that that, that that's one of those awkward moments. Like, uh, it can be. I apologize to her, but she's used. To, I said, I'm sure you're probably no offense. You're probably used to people who get so starstruck by your beauty. And she goes, Yeah, I get that from time to time. It's not uncommon. She goes every year, every show, every day. She goes, It just happens. And so, of course, you know we just talk and socialize. But no, it's there's just so much stuff when even the agents want to get up and go check out something and that doesn't happen at other shows by the way um that's a compliment oh i, I know and i and i got to meet brett and mall that that one convention too and it was just uh you talk about two so nice so kind and and and, and just there for the fans and talking you know it was just and i actually got to meet that agent he was so good he, like he said oh, i was paying for an autograph and a, and a picture and um, he's like oh, i'll take the picture for it. and he, he must have snapped i think seven or eight pictures of me interacting with her, you know, cause I get the camera back and I'm like, he's like, I hope these are good. I'm like, wow. You know, cause it's so a lot of times the people there will, you know, 
when they say take a photo, you know, you a lot of times I've had it where the star will say, I don't know if that was good. Let me see that picture. And they'll show it. And it's like, no, we're doing another one. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, and it's interesting because some, some agents are different than others. And to be fair, they're all nice, but, uh, the ones that the ones I always like are the ones that will do multiple photos, knowing you'll at least get one good one in case his hand is shaky, not just one photo hand it to you and then give you a gripe when you come back later and you want another photo, which I've seen at, at shows. And they're like, ah, and they think you're trying to pull one over. And you're like, dude, I already paid for it. It's no overhead. I just want to get my photo without it being fuzzy. You know, and that doesn't happen at ours. And uh, I'll give you a nice story. A guy called me up and said that he had water base damage in his basement and he had lost his autographed photos. And he goes, I had one by Tony Dow when he was at your show 10 years ago. And, and now that he's coming with Jerry Mathers, I can get both of them, but I'm stuck having to buy Tony Dow's again. And he says, and I, it's a darn shame. And I said, Oh, well, what's your name and address? I said, uh, let me go talk. Let me talk to the agent. I don't think it'd be a problem. So I was talking to the agent and I told him and before I could even propose the idea to him, cause that's the kind of show we want to have running. The agent immediately said, Oh, just have him tell me whether that he was the one with the water damage and the thing. We'll just have, we'll get uh, we won't charge him to have Tony's autograph on a photo again. He goes, he doesn't have to pay twice. He said he'll just pay for Jerry's if he wants both. And I was like, well, that's nice, and that's that's why I'm sitting back going, this will be a nice relaxing weekend this year. Crowd head crowd, the crowd may be large, but it'll be a nice convention. And I'll, I'll share this as a as a final story about the Mid Atlantic for us. Um, Robert Fuller. My mom wanted me to get an autograph for her from him. And I knew him from emergency. I'd never sold the show Laramie or any of that stuff, but, but I know about it now. And I'd seen him in one of the um, Magnificent Seven sequel movies. And so I waited. So I'm like, I saw his line was long and I was like, oh, I'm not going to wait again. So I went over to Bernie Copel and Bernie, I was going to get a photo with him, but I had to go behind the tables to where Bernie was. By the time I was able to get behind the table, Robert Fuller was talking to him because I didn't know they were, but they're really great friends. And so I waited patiently and then Robert Fuller came up and he saw me and I'm wearing um, a law enforcement shirt, you know, for, for to torch run. And he looked at it, looked, looked me up head to toe. And he said, um, I'm Robert Fuller. I said, I'm Steve. We, we, we talked for a couple minutes and I'm looking at the corner of my head. His table has this long line, but he was stretching his legs and we're talking for a couple of minutes. And he goes back to his table and I get my picture of Bernie. Later that same day, I'm walking the dealer room, and I guess he's trying to stretch his legs. He comes up to me and goes, Steve, right? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, and we talk again for a few minutes. And he goes back to his table. And, I'm like, <laughs> and finally, a friend of mine who's a paramedic, we go through the line to get to his table, and um, we get up to the front, and uh, you had the guy there from 1 Adam 12, or Adam 12. Kent McCord. Kent yeah. McCord. And he said – wouldn't it be great if we could get our photos with both of them? So I said to the, the, the guy who was helping Robert Fuller out, um, Hey, is it possible? You know, we get both. And he says, Oh yeah, we'll take care of it. And they were doing this and they were setting it up and they came over. We got our pictures with them. And, um, so we went up, we got our pictures done ahead of time. We went up to go pay for it. And I put my money down and Robert Fuller looked at me and pushed the money back. And he did the same for my friend because my friend was a retired paramedic. And I was a police officer at the time for a college campus. And he said, your money's no good here. Aww. And and some celebrities are like that. You know, they just like, there's certain, you know, it's just like, boom, I'm not taking your money. And it was just, it was just nice to, you know, to see, but it was kind of interesting. You know, here you're just walking around and some of them are just, 
They just like to talk to people. They just come out there. They, they, they're interested in meeting you just as much as you are as meeting them. And the surprising part is most of them want to do that. It's that there's a business aspect that's run by their associates slash managers slash agents who call the shots. And a lot of times they're used to just being told where to go and what to do. But the stars do love having conversations. I remember there was a convention, not ours, where Peter Fonda was at there. And someone came over and said, I'd love to interview over such and such. And the woman next to Peter Fonda said, I'm sorry, he's here for autographs. You, you, know, you have to come back another time. He doesn't do interviews. And he said he remembers looking at Peter Fonda at the time. And Fonda's giving him the look and wording the mouth. He's mouthing off silently, I'm sorry. And he was having his hands in the air like he really wanted to do the interview. And I'm sitting back thinking, ah, at our show, he'd be doing the interview. <laughs> oh, I know. It's just, it's, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, and you never know. The unasked question is always no. So if you ask a, a celebrity about something, you never know what you're going to get. You might get a yes. You might get a no. You might get a noncommittal. I mean, it's, it's always worth a try. And, and usually it's the question that they don't get a zillion times that makes them stop and really stand to attention it's like a stephanie powers a lot of people probably was nothing more than girl from uncle and heart to heart and the moment somebody said you did a stage performance to, to, to playing the role of Tallulah bankhead as a as what bankhead would have done if she stood up and did a one a one woman monologue for an hour and a half and you worked with her and died die my darling and stephanie powers when that was brought up eyes grew big as dinner plates all perked up and for like 10 minutes held the line up talking about how she got to know Tula Bankhead a little bit while they were filming and how she used that. And she loved it because it wasn't, oh, April Dancer or uh, uh, Heart to Heart. <laughs> so sometimes you never know what gets their interest and go, oh, yeah. We had uh, Ed Asner at the show, I remember. He, was, he came in with um, Julie Newmar one year, and somebody had gone over to Ed Asner and said, uh, you're a fan of Renfrew of the Mounted. It was a radio program in the 30s. And you used to do the Renfrew call when you were on like Merv Griffin. And he perked up and all of a sudden you're not asking about him. It's something he liked. And he went on about how when he was a kid, he'd race home from the school and you would listen to this radio show and the Canadian Mountie and how he would follow the map that he had that they would have as a premium. And you could follow where Carol and David and Renfrew were traveling through the Yukon to go find this sunken city in the Arctic. And he just absolutely loved it. And before he walked away, before the guy walked away, because he was a Renfrew collector, um, Ed Asner's like, well, don't you want a photo with me? And it wasn't even charging. He was just all thrilled that somebody had just brought something up that he hadn't, he had forgotten about for decades. Oh, exactly. And um, I remember Rico Browning, who was the man who wore the creature from the Black Lagoon costume. When I was talking with him at his table, and I'd met him a couple times before at another convention, and I went up to him and I was talking to him about Caddyshack, Flipper, and he was just lighting, he just lit up and went right in all these stories about Caddyshack, how he did the second unit directing and all that stuff. And it was just, you know, he was going on and on and on, you know, I was like, because I just, like you said, you hit that thing where he's been wanting to talk about for who knows how long. And, I, and finally, it's like something different than, I mean, even though he loves Creatures from the Black Lagoon, obviously he goes out to people and knows he's going to get hit with questions with it. Here's somebody comes about Caddyshack. And he's like, yes. <laughs> now, see, I didn't know about Caddyshack. I knew about Sea Hunt and Flipper, but I did not know about Caddyshack. The ne next time you the next time you see him, I mean, talk, he, he, it, it's, it's a great stories that he brought up with it about how um, 
they got the golf ball to the to stick on the bird and all this other stuff that they were that he was doing. It was it was really funny. It, 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 he went on for about I don't know eight nine ten minutes. It was it was a long time just about Caddyshack. Oh wow! See, I learned something new myself. That's the beauty of it all. That's why we talk to each other. <laughs> well, Martin, thank you again for joining us, and I hope I hope the listeners that are out in the area come down and do the convention and enjoy it, and also hope that they watch the White Reindeer. Yes, recommend it. I think we've talked enough to recommend that they'll make an effort. It's really worth it. All right, but thank you for your time and listeners. Enjoy us for our next episode. We'll be doing another movie review or an interview. Stay tuned and hope everybody has a good day.